Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Accra. And I'm singing it because it's going to make a lot of sense for the conversation. But folks, yes, I'm one day into Accra. I think I mentioned last year when I got back, I went straight to a festival called the Peja Festival, which is part of the antics for this weekend. It's a it's a writer's festival here in Ghana. So I just want to give you all a heads up. We'll have more writers on the podcast coming up soon. And we have a writer here with us now. Let me just get straight to his introduction and kick off the conversation. So he is a renowned vocal coach, singer, songwriter, and producer. Yeah, you get where I'm going with that. Notable recordings on Universal Republic have garnered him a loyal following. As a singer, producer, and writer, his recording contributions have been nominated for Grammy Awards, the Latin Grammys, the NAACP Image Awards, and the 2020 Oscar Awards with Cynthia. Erivo. He works with an array of celebrated artists such as Common, Brandy, Robert Glasper, Roe James, and others. He launched the Abia Way, an artist development platform to enlighten, inspire, and empower music artists globally and expanding his influence in the music industry. His work has launched the careers of many current music artists on the charts and on Broadway. Clients include Sony, RCA, Atlantic, Columbia Records, as well as numerous Broadway and opera stars. He is a former professor of voice at Berklee College of Music and can be seen on the stage at music festivals, concert halls, and teaching masterclasses worldwide. In 2020, he debuted his popular new Facebook Live talk show, Inside the Singer's Voice, where each session is an intimate conversation between great singers about great singing. I think we're going to talk a little bit about where that is today or where it's going, I hope so. So, Jeremiah Abia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yay! So... Let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Oh, that's a loaded question. (laughs) I am from New York. I grew up upstate New York in Rochester. And I come from Ghanaian and Cuban parents and Cuban-American, I should say, definitely. And I grew up there and then had the honor to go to college and study voice. I originally started my career out as an opera singer pretty interesting beginnings, actually, because I started out in opera, but then at 15 years old, I actually had the opportunity to go on the road for a bit with George Michael as a background Mm. singer. And uh, also same backgrounds for like Yolanda Adams. I worked with uh, Chuck Mangione. So I had a lot of cool opportunities as a young professional artist. And then I went off to college and kind of went this route of like, I'm going to be an opera singer. And uh, I had the privilege to grow up with a mom who was a classical pianist and was really exposed very early. So I think uh, the diversity in my upbringing was really pivotal to who I have become artistically. I never saw myself as, you know, I've become known as this really well-known voice teacher, vocal coach, you know, artist development person. That really wasn't my intention. But after having lived in Italy for some time, singing opera, when I came back to New York, my dad sat me down in typical Ghanaian fashion and was like, hey, you've done all these things. How are you going to make money? Right? You've left 
Italy. You've come to New York. How are you going to make money? And he's like, well, I'm going to give you six things that I want you to think about. And he wrote these things down. And honest, I lost that piece of paper, which I treasured so much. But the two things that stuck with me were, if you educate people, you'll change the world. And make yourself a business, incorporate yourself so that people don't think of you as a hobby. And so I didn't know what any of that really meant at the time, right? The second one seems much more, you know, understandable. But the teach part, I came from some really great teachers, but I never intended to teach. And I found that once I started touring and I got record deals and I'd be all over the world, didn't matter where I was, once in a while, someone would come to me and say, do you teach or will you teach me? It kept happening to me. And I thought to myself, what does that mean? But then my dad's voice kept ringing in my And so I, one day I was actually in Moscow, actually. And a young lady came up to me and said this to me. And I said, okay, when I finish signing CDs, wait for me. And when you finish signing CDs, I want to talk with you. So after about an hour or more, we went into the, uh, back into the performance hall and I gave her a voice lesson. Wow. And nice. Uh, yeah, it was cool. And from that moment forward, I knew that this thing that was in me was so much greater than just being an artist and being, you know, I was an artist on another level. And I was being an artist on another level. And that I would use my gifts as opportunity to educate people because I had this wealth of knowledge that people obviously felt drawn to. And somehow that was going to impact the world. And so once I started that, I had other friends who, you know, who were in the trenches with me and would say, do you realize what kind of legacy you're setting up for yourself? And the fact that people trust you with their gift, how much of an honor that is. And I never have taken it for granted. And so that started me on, now I was touring. And when I wasn't touring, I was teaching. And then universities started to call me and say, hey, we see this response to who you are artistically. Can you come to our institution? So at Berkeley called me up. I started teaching at Berkeley. And um, I'm still technically on their roster. If you go to their website, I'm going to be there mm -hmm. because we are always in conversation. I'm like one of those trans professors. Mm, adjunct, yeah, right? That you can come back and forth. Yeah, I can come back when as needed. And then I've you know, taught at other universities. And then another thing that I really, really enjoy is teaching master classes, which is uh, you know, being in a room full of aspiring and sometimes well-known singers and giving them feedback on a performance and watching their voice change in front of an audience. And what a transformative experience for not only the artist, but also the audience to see, you know, people think that singing is like, just jump up and I'm going to make this noise. But no, it's actually when done well, because I believe in the excellence of singing, that it really requires kind of an algorithm for it to be really great. And mm. I worked really hard to develop my the Abia way. What does that mean? And uh, so I've spent, uh, you know, the last few years even writing a book that I haven't put out yet to really explain my aesthetic about the voice and how I have literally saved people's voices. I have literally, you know, someone will come to me and say, oh, I have vocal nodes. Vocal no nodes is when nodules with calluses will grow on the vocal cords. And I could rehab their voices without getting them surgery because oftentimes, especially now, they're very quick to try to give surgery to avoid to a singer 
but that's literally a band-aid. It's not fixing the problem. So I have to go in and show them how to recalibrate the instrument so that it works well. So that is kind of my journey or up until a certain point, because it's kind of evolved now. But mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, that that's kind of you know my my story and to a, to an extent. So your craft is nurturing the voice. Would you say that? My voice is is nurturing the voice. Yes, it is. Your voice. Okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, um, I was wanting to raise my hand when you were saying I've even friends think part of the tribe because I was an ABA student <laughs> years and years and years ago. And so I still do like a lot of the drills that we used to do. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because I realize as I have gotten older and done more breath work, so breath work is, is definitely changing how I work with my breath. So I was telling you the other day when we saw each other that it is the breath that makes the voice what do, do what it does. Right. And so like, and so many times I realize, and so many people do it unconsciously, we hold our breath. We're talking, we're holding our breath. We're sitting, we're holding our breath. So it's this unconsciousness that just kind of keeps you you know, tight or what have you. So I do the exercises and the breath makes a lot of of sense. And I say that because I practice a little bit because I have this (laughs) opportunity here. (laughs) Well, you know, the opportunity is a lifestyle. Yes. Okay. Right. Exactly. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. (laughs) So what you didn't say was where you are local. So I am local now. I spend my time living between New York City, which is where I have lived the last 23 years, and now Atlanta, Georgia. Mm, okay, yeah. ATL and the NYC. <laughs> okay, so I'm curious now about, you mentioned that a lot of your upbringing kind of led you to the music yes. and having a classical pianist as a mother, et cetera. And I, I think you kind of started to talk about why opera, but why opera? Like, how did you find, like, really find that as your voice, initially and then and then how did you then transform yourself from a from an opera voice to a popular music or R&B or soul voice um so my mother who played in the church when I was growing up but she also actually was the pianist for a very famous opera singer named William Warfield mm. who was married to Leontine Price at one point so my mom had played for him many times in the past. And so I grew up going to my mother's voice lessons. I grew up watching her play classical music. I watched her playing in church. So music was always in our home. And I think opera really fell in my lap when I went to high school. When I went to high school, I went to performing arts high school in Rochester, which is the same high school that uh, Tay Diggs went to. uh, And the singer Tweet. So we went to this wonderful performing arts school. Now, the crazy thing is, is I'm not sure if you're familiar with Renee Fleming. Yes. Mm-hmm. Renee Fleming is the most famous soprano in the world right now. Her mother was our voice teacher. Oh. And so Renee, who was in college at the time when I was in school, she would come visit her mom and sing for us, right? She would, her mother would just dote over her and brag about her accomplishments, and rightfully so. Actually, Miss Alexander literally died last week, uh, who was one of my voice mentors and my be- one of my beginnings. So, you know, I'm a linguist. I grew up speaking several languages, and... So going to performing arts school right away from freshman year and 
getting exposed to the art song repertoire, which is like singing in Italian and French and German and Latin, uh, sometimes Russian, sometimes Hebrew. I really just fell in love with the art form. I fell in love with the idea of singing in other languages. That spoke to me deeply. And so I had a very intricate instrument. My voice had a capacity mm. to do a lot. It had a very big sound that it could make. It also was very ambi- uh, ambidextrous. It had the ability to do a lot. So, you know, obviously growing up in church, you're singing gospel music. Um, but when I went to perform in arts, we were singing classical music. We were singing jazz. We were getting exposed to music theater. So I had a lot of opportunities to experiment with my instrument. But I think why the classical music... And then I found out I was really good at it. I was really good at it. And so I started... My teachers also recognized my innate talent. And so they started putting me into competitions. And I was winning the competitions. Okay. Yeah. So... All right. <laughs> I was to your parents like, okay, this kid has... It's something. real. It's real. Yeah. And so by the time I went to... When I was getting ready to go to college, I had won several major competitions, including the NAACP's uh, Act So Awards, which was like uh, people would compete in the arts and also the sciences and, and math and etc. And so I won the national competitions of of NAACP AXO. And then I was, the other thing that I had the honor to do was to study at the Eastman School of Music. Eastman School of Music is top five music uh, conservatories in the world, happens to be in Rochester. So I had an opportunity to also study there. And so my musicality was being, you know, undergirded. It was being really, I was being trained in a very high level, which was making me stand apart from my friends who had very natural talents, right? I had natural talents, but I was also being given. Superpowering them. They were getting superpowers. I was being supercharged (laughs) for the world, right? We were really gleaned from Mrs. Alexander and all of the professionals I started to come in contact with. So by 15 years old, I had a manager. I I got opportunities to sing for George Michael. I got an opportunity to sing for Yolanda Adams. All these things started happening for me. So it was a very clear path. My family said, this is going to pay for me to go to college. And so when I went to audition for college, obviously I went to performing arts programs, voice programs. And I got full scholarship to college. So it was kind of a no-brainer that this is what I was going to do. However, I never wanted to let go of the popular music side of myself. And so I was in recording sessions because normally when you're in the conservatory environment, it's very strict. It's very regimented. And they want your voice to do a specific thing. And I was somebody who could do it all. And so thank God I had teachers who really allowed me to explore because it has given me such a wealth of information that now it not only informed the career that I would have, but it also is now helping me to inform the careers that I help people build. You know, if you go to an opera singer who studied just opera, it's very hard for them to relate to popular singing or non-classical singing. But I had the ability and the experience to sing a lot of it, never sing rock, but almost anything besides that. And so it's really helped me to be able to help a lot of people. I never knew that story. (laughs) Um, Side note, folks, I've known Jeremiah for a long, long time. At least least 20 (laughs) years, at least. 
Yeah, Elise. We uh, we were neighbors in Brooklyn when That's he lived right. in Brooklyn. So so we would literally. So what he's not saying is. So we're talking about the art, and it's so wonderful to see how all of us have like evolved into like our real selves. Because when we met, the singing was obvious, but you were working at a law firm. Oh my God! You remember? So we would see each other going to yeah, going to work in the morning to the train. Like hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, believe it or not, I that was yeah. only for one, one maybe maybe two years, and I got signed. Yeah, for that. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's when the album. Yep, yep, yep. Early days. Yeah, early days. <laughs> wow, wow. You also would come yeah. to house parties too. I used to have those. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, one more question on opera, because you mentioned it and I'm, I'm curious. So what has been your your most treasured opera experience? So whether that's like performing in a certain language that you love or a specific opera that you love to perform, what, what would you say has been your most favorite? I'll tell you a story. I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. So of all of the performing that I've done in my life, when I was getting ready to graduate from college, I won a major competition and I made my debut at Carnegie Hall, mm. which obviously is, you know, an extremely big opportunity. But on stage, I realized in that moment, I actually don't know how to sing. Oh, wow. Tell us more. <laughs> there is natural singing and there is technical singing. And so what I realized in that moment is that all of the training that I had had were, was really riding on my natural talent, my natural singing, but it wasn't technical. And what I mean by that is that some days it showed up amazing and some days not so amazing. Because I actually didn't know how it was functioning, I could just do it. So on that stage, I actually crashed and burned on that stage. It was not fabulous. It was not great. And so I had to make a decision I'm either going to go towards popular music in that moment, or I'm going to go and I'm going to study my voice in a way that is undeniable. So I applied to graduate school. I got accepted to several schools, but I decided to go to New England Conservatory in Boston. And the reason that I went there is because I was told by a professor at my undergraduate school, there was a particular teacher I need to study with. So I went to the school And I saw how old this woman was. And I said, she is going to die before I finish school. So, (laughs) Omaya chooses a different teacher. Oh. It was a major mistake. Yes. And so after that first semester, I went begging and pleading to this 86-year-old woman, Mm -hmm. asking her to take me into her studio. Flo, I have to say, that was two of the most grueling years of my life. Everything that I knew about myself, about my voice, or what I thought I knew. I knew nothing. She made it very clear to me that I knew nothing. And I felt like nothing. I felt like nothing. And I cried all of the time. Hmm. However, I trusted her and I trusted the process, no matter how hard it was. By the time I finished my second year of graduate school, I was singing so technically well, I was on the front of the Boston Globe. Oh, wow. Okay. So what was this teacher's name? She's the... Her name was Helen Hodum. Helen Hodum. Okay. Helen Hodum, H-O-D-A-M. She was a brilliant woman who really gave me my technical foundation. Mm -hmm. And that is 
very much a part of what I teach other singers now. While it is the mm-hmm. obvious way, it is de- remnants, tons of remnants from the Hold'em way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really honor her with my with my life and my career because she really had such an impact on me as an artist, but also as a teacher. I was so enthralled by the art of singing at that point. I would ask her, can I stay and watch you teach the next student? I was getting my my apprenticeship underneath this. Right, right. No one teaches to teach. It was for me, so I thought. Yeah, good study. Yeah, different study. So mm. one thing I've learned, and I know this is probably later, but it's it's so fresh for me to say it now, is that we are not living our lives for ourselves. We're living them for someone else. And so I really took that information to heart. And she's the reason that to this day I can, I can assess a singer, say they have a vocal problem, and send them to the voice doctor and the, the, the ear, nose, and throat doctors, and they'll call me or email me or say, you are spot on. Mm. And what is your idea to help the singer? And take my advice on how to rehab a voice. So that has really been one of my calls to fame as a teacher, as a, a vocal architect, right, is build, building the voice. So what my favorite moment, my favorite moment was being on the Boston Globe cover, but it's only because of the story that came through that experience because nobody knows it the way that I knew it or the way I experienced it. So people are going to work and seeing the Boston Globe, but what I saw was the journey that it took me to get there. What a beautiful story. Yeah. I mean, it says a lot about just the idea of study and really appreciating the fact that when it's there, you really being in it, it makes all the difference, you know, being fully committed to that. And that the word, you know, trusting her, trusting, uh, trusting the process, all that is, uh, is key. So you've been a bit around, we talked a little bit about, you know, you're local, but, uh, let's ask why the where. So how then did you come to be living, working and playing in ATL? Well, that's a great question. Uh, (laughs) I have lots of stories. So before ATL was Los Angeles. So in 2017, I moved to Los Angeles and it was really to expand my career in as a teacher, as an artist, and also a quality of life change. I think like having lived in New York for so long, I was looking for something else that would still give me the entertainment business and in a very accessible way, but also give me a house versus an apartment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I happened to be watching Wendy Williams show actually one day and my friend was on there. He was on the show, The Shy, Antare. And so um, I hit Antare and I was like, hey man, just congratulating him because I know his journey as an actor. And then I said, hey, I'm actually looking to move to Los Angeles, you know, and I'm looking for a place. And so... Uh, and Tare said, actually, I have a house that I'm renting out because I'm moving into a bigger house. <laughs> He's made it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I said, you know what? I'm going to take it. I had no work. I had no job. I had nothing. I just had my clients, right? And I was like, I got to make new clients, you know, but my reputation goes before me. Yeah. And so in faith, I picked up, I moved to Los Angeles. I say all that to set the grounds that while I was in Los Angeles in 2018, I was in my backyard and I had this download. Now, anybody who's an artist, probably anybody who creates, they get downloads. I got this download. This thing started pouring out of me so quickly, I couldn't keep, I couldn't write it fast enough. 
Proxy started using the Otter app, right, to um, voice record these this memo that was coming to me. What I had written through my hand and through the speech was a script. Now, additionally to all this singing that I've done over my life, I've made a living as a songwriter, but I never written anything long form. And so I wrote this feature film, but it was so clear. I knew the lead actress. I knew the whole cast of this film. It was so strong on me. So I wrote it. I shared it with a friend and they're like, you wrote this? Yeah. Like, you know, you should think about doing more of this. And so I happened to, at that time, was coaching the cast of the Broadway show Ain't Too Proud uh, that was going to be going to Broadway. But, you know, usually before a show goes to Broadway, they kind of tour it around the country to kind of work on it, to fix all of the, the kinks in the, in the story and the performance. So while coaching that show, I, I met this man named Michael Swanson, who was one of the producers of the show. He was one of the, the investor producers of the show. Michael Swanson is the senior vice president of NBC Universal. So he and I hit it off really well. And I met him through another mentor friend of mine named Ron Simons, who is a, he's like a six-time Tony Award-winning producer on Broadway, but also has produced a bunch of films and television. And so he introduced me to Michael. I, I say to Michael, you know, is it okay if I share this script with you? I share the script with Michael, the film. And he says, well, listen, this is really cool. I can't read it because of my position at work. But what I am going to do is I'm going to have you send it to a cover to get coverage. Coverage is when somebody reads through a script, they're professional script readers, and they look at all the holes in the script and help you fix it. So he's like, I'm going to send you to the same person that we use. So I send my script to this woman. She gives me a ton of feedback. And she says, I'm going to tell you, go take these couple of classes. There's something here. Go take a couple of classes. So this is 2018, 2019. I'm taking classes and, and I'm re I'm editing my script. And as I mentioned to you, Common is one of my clients, but he's also become a very dear friend. And mm -hmm. so one day we're talking and he's studying with me on and off over the years. And he says to me, Jay, what are you working on, man? And I say, well, actually I've been screenwriting. He's like, what? It's like, send me something. And I said, are you serious? He's like, no, send it to me. So I sent it to him. And the next week he calls me up and he says, man, I have to tell you something. I read scripts every day and I can tell within two pages if somebody's a good screenwriter, you're a great screenwriter. Mm. And I sent your script to my production company. Wow. Okay. So I'm like, okay, so God, this seems like I'm right. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like, here's a God wink for you. Right. So <laughs> I start having meetings with his production company and common says, man, I can help you with this, but I can't carry it with you. You need a manager. So of course, I work with a lot of well-known people. So I, I start going through my Rolodex. Well, who could I call who might be, you know, helpful in this situation? And I reach out to this one manager. Her name is Pamela Cooper. And Pamela, so now now we're we're already into the pandemic, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At this point, we're into the pandemic. So this is two years. And so Pamela's like, well, I'm honored that you would, you know, think of me. And I, she said, your timing couldn't be better because since the pandemic, we've had a lot of film TV stuff that has kind of started to occur for us as a company. Send me the script. I send Pamela the script. 
she calls me the next week and says, we would be honored to represent you. Wow. And after that, I was speaking to another friend of mine who is a writer. She had just written a film for Oprah and in uh, LA. And I have a meeting with her lawyer and her lawyer's like, send me something. I now have representation on the lawyer side. So basically building my team, right? And so I'm saying all this to tell you how I got to ATO. So 2020, by 2020, I've written another feature film. In addition to the script that you're shopping, you've shopped. Yeah. And, exactly. Yep. The original one mm-hmm. I, I was shopping and I've written another one. Now I have people giving me feedback from my team. And so 2020 happens, 2021 happens. And then I write another feature and I'm writing, I wrote, write like two television shows during all of this time. So in the summer of 21, I go to my friend's wedding. And before I get there, that Friday night, so Common's team decided after like a year that they were going to pass on it, which was fine. But I started to say to myself, well, if we're going to shop this, what are the what are the credentials or the, or the, the requirements that people are going to ask of me? I started doing some research. One of these things said, you need to have a synopsis of your film, a very detailed synopsis that's just a one pager. So I go visit a friend of mine on my way to this wedding in Virginia, it's in Virginia, and I'm passing through Maryland. I stopped at one of my best friends, my childhood best friend's house. And that night when I went to bed about one in the morning, I write the synopsis of my first feature. Mm-hmm. And that night before I go to bed, I pray and I say, God, if this is the chapter that you want for my life, I need you to just give me some signs because I don't want to spin my wheels if it's not what you really want for me. And... That Sunday morning, I I wake up before the wedding and I get an email from one of the periodicals that tells you what's going on in the film industry. And it says, Mike Guile from Insecure is starting a Black Writers Initiative. And I read all the way to the bottom and it says, such and such person who happens to be a friend of mine who was his attorney. So I reach out to his attorney and I say, hey, because she knows that I'm, I'm a writer as well. And I say, hey, can you connect me with your client, I, I see he's doing this thing. Within five minutes, there's a message between the two of us, the three of us. Mm-hmm. 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 I go to the wedding in Virginia. Later that afternoon, it's a uh, my friend's wedding, and I see my friend Dwayne. My friend Dwayne is a lawyer. And he's like, man, Jay, what's going on with the music? And I was like, well, you know, I've been writing. I've been focusing on screenwriting. And he's like, what? I need to talk to you. Come here. Let, let's talk pulls me to the side and he says, you know, I've invested in four films. And I say, what? He says, yeah, man. He says, Flo, he says to me, do you have a synopsis of your film? I had just written it two days before. Right. Yeah. So I get chills even talking about it right now. It's like, this is the second week from God within, within two days. So he reads the synopsis. I send it to him right then. He reads it in front of me. He says, oh, I have some people you need to talk to. He sends an email between me and some people mm-hmm. about Half an hour later, I lied to you now. I'm standing on the side. You know, I have one of my Ghana tailored suits on. I'm looking fresh and fly. And this and this woman come up to me, complimenting me on my suit. And the w- man walks away and the woman and I start talking. And she was like, um, so what do you do? And I, and I said, this is the first time I had ever proclaimed it. I said, I'm a writer. Mm, okay. And she was like, oh, interesting. And she said, where'd you come in from? I said, oh, well, I, I came in from New York. And I said, where'd you come in? She said, came in from Atlanta. 
Oh, she said, no, I used to work in, in New York. I live in New York and worked there before I got my current job. Now I live in Atlanta. And I said, oh, cool. I was like, I'm actually thinking of moving to Atlanta because I need a quiet place to write. So she starts to talk about her job. Come to find out she is the direct person right under Tyler Perry. Mm, okay. She <laughs> says to me, well, what's your pitch? So she's asking me about my, my work. So I start sharing about my feature film to her, my first feature film. She takes my phone from me and she puts her number in my phone and she says, be in touch. So over 21, from 21 to 22, every time she would come to New York, we'd go out to dinner and just hang out, talk. Mm-hmm. No business, just talking about life, getting to know each other. Then I would come to Atlanta quite often because my brothers were living here and I actually was pr- being, I was professor shipping at a school about two hours from Atlanta. So I was coming to Atlanta about mm-hmm. once a month uh, to go up mm-hmm. to the school. And so I would have dinner with her pretty often. And then the, the, between that year's time, I was also sending her my scripts. Anything I would write, I would send it to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she was giving me feedback. She's mentoring me. So fast forward, 2022, Last summer, I decide I'm going to move to, it's time. I'm going to jump. I'm going to leap. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to leap. And I moved to Atlanta. I call up this woman who's now a mentor, friend of mine. I call her up and I say, hey, I made it to Atlanta. What, you moved here? Let me take you out to dinner. Now, I had just sent her a TV show probably about five weeks before that. So she says to me, you know, I'm working on this project and, um, I really like this TV show you sent me. Would you mind if I shared it with an executive that I'm working on with a project with? And I say, sure. So she sends it to him. Within two days, I get a Zoom meeting with this gentleman who's quite established. And they ask me, will you write this series for us? So from October to May of 2023, I write this. I'm working on this pilot show for these executives. And so my point of saying that's how I got to Atlanta. And that's been my newest chapter in my life. I've been known as a singer my entire life and I'm still a singer, but I'm a multi-hyphenate, right? I have all of these things that I feel that were inside of me. And I think that I got so caught up in the idea of who I thought I was that I really hadn't been put keeping my hand on the pulse of all the other things that were inside of me. And so I'm really grateful. It's a very scary territory because I haven't made any money, right? You got to pay your bills. Yeah, yeah. But what I am sure of is that my gift is making room for me because there have been too many coincidences of opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I did such a great job on that last show. I just got asked last week to write some mails for this guy. So things are starting to spin. I have a lot of irons in the fire, in other words. And so that's really my journey. My, my lawyer's like, you know, when something takes off, you need to have at least six projects behind that already set up. Mm-hmm. So I have five mm-hmm. solid projects right now and now I'm trying to build the last two so that I at least have that in the works. I, I have a very strong feeling that something great is, is just beyond the horizon. And I really appreciate how you've taken us through the journey because it really t- speaks about the business of 
becoming a writer, right? Like it wasn't your initial talent. You, you, you know, so through that process, you got management, you got legal representation. The last final piece is always the hardest nut to crack, which is funding. So that's its own different matrix, but I appreciate you uh, taking us through that. Absolutely. Yeah. So now you're in Atlanta, you've lived in a few places. And so let's talk about local speak. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you've come to value it as global speak. So you could choose Atlanta, but wherever you have felt local and and feel like there's something you want to juicy, juicy lingo or sentiments that you'd like to share. Well, the only thing that comes to mind when you say that to me is this statement came to me while in New York, on the stage at the Blue Note. I think my experiences as a singer and someone who communicates very well is, this is what came to me. Dreams are not coincidence, but delayed reality. That is something that that I live live by. Because every place that I have gone, I dreamed it. And even if it didn't happen right then, it eventually happens. Right. So my career as a singer was a dream. It wasn't a coincidence. It was a delayed reality because it eventually happened. So that's the that's my my thing. That's the thing I live by. So I dreamed Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta. I dreamed of and I'm writing. And you're doing something else, which is hosting. So you have you have a lot going on. So so let's ease into the conversation about the singer's voice. Inside the singer's voice. Yeah. Inside the singer's voice. Yeah. Inside the singer's voice. So tell us what is that? How did it start? Where's it going? So talking about dreams not being coincidence, late reality. If we go all the way back to nine to 2004. When I got my record deal, 2004, 2005, I was in the studio making my debut album. And, and what was the name of that debut album? And all this will be in the show notes, folks, but let, let's hear you say <laughs> it. Also, the first album was called Chasing Forever. And the, my biggest hit off of that album was a duet with the singer Shanice of I Love Your Smile, right? And so we're in the studio together, Shanice and I. And she and I can do some this thing that a lot of people can't do. It's called a whistle tone. It's the thing that Mariah Carey. Oh, Mariah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, the thing uh-huh. that Minnie Riperton was known for. So I started asking her, because BET was there filming. So BET was there. It was a very big situation. And sure. so uh, she and I are talking, and I started asking her, well, how do you whistle tone? What, like, how do you approach it? What's your thing? And she's like, oh, no one's ever asked me that. And she started analyzing herself in that moment. Mm, How she mm -hmm. does this thing. And I tell her, well, I do this because, you know, I'm a technician. So I'm like, oh, well, I do this. And then this happens. And, you know, talk to her about my trifecta vocally. And she starts saying, oh, like, yes, I do. It turned into this beautiful conversation about the voice that wasn't stereotypical. And so on my way home, I wrote what is now, I know, to be a treatment <laughs> for a oh, okay. show called Inside the Singer's Voice. Okay. And so uh-huh. I lived with this idea for many, many, many years. My career started getting bigger and elevating and da-da-da. And I would talk to singers. I, I've had this like interview with Layla Hathaway and Stokely from Mint Condition. And we've had these conversations on and off the camera. And then I, I mentioned Ron Simons, who's been one of my mentors, he gave me $12,000 back in probably seven years ago now. 
And we made a pilot, a sizzler for this talk show. We started shopping it. I had a deal on the table. It didn't go through, but you know, I believe in God's timing. I really do. And so we, I backed away, you know, it didn't happen. And, you know, then you kind of sometimes get a little discouraged. You're like, well, what's going on here? And so then in, during the pandemic, we're all sitting on our hands, right? Like, well, what am I doing? So I decided to kind of, you know, resuscitate the idea through a on-camera conversation. So I called like, I think eight to 10 of my friends in the business from all genres, you know, Titus Burgess and Eric Roberson and Lawrence Brownlee, famous opera singer, calling all the folks that I've built relationships with. And I said, let's just, Claude Kelly, who's a very famous uh, songwriter, he wrote some of the biggest hits in recent years. And, you know, we just kind of talked about voice on camera and it was, you know, really, really well received. And uh, now I'm actually building out what can be considered the podcast version. So, okay. uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm building that out right now. And, you know, the idea is still shopping around, but I think I'm responsible more than anyone else to kind of make it happen. But I do believe it'll happen as it's supposed to happen. But I believe, I know and believe the conversation is so important because the art form has been compromised so much over the years. And computer technology and looks have kind of really taken precedence over the actual gift itself. And I'm one of those people, the torch, who wants to see it remain really special. You know, because, you know, you think about someone like, you know, an Aretha Franklin or a Stevie Wonder or a Luther Vandross or a Barry White. A lot of these people would never have gotten their opportunities based on today's today's market and even the stakeholders in, in the business. They just, they're not grounded enough to know what really, how, it's not about the look, but about the gift itself. And so I know it's a very important conversation to continue to have. And because I'm respected in the way that I am in this business, I think I'll, I, I know it's part of my calling to make sure I keep it alive. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great expansion of the brand. And as a podcaster, I love the platform. So I think it fits very well as a platform. I mean, I'm a I'm a audio purist-ish, I guess. <laughs> but I love the idea of watching you speak about it. And probably, I'm assuming you would have some mini masterclass types of, you know, additions to to this set because you're you're planning to do a video podcast. Absolutely. I, I'm assuming. Absolutely. So we'll be looking forward to that. Well I'll be giving you for lots of advice, trust. <laughs> you're you will be very welcome to all that I know. <laughs> so let's talk about mindset. I mean every part of our conversation has shown that it really has been about you having the kind of mindset that is carrying you through and and allowing you to be open and available to to experience your gifts and beyond. And so I like to ask about what is your favorite or innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you practice, one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. Hmm. You know, a lot of people have a lot of things that they kind of go to flow, but I have to say... The only thing that I know really, really well is my faith. It's the one consistent thing about my life. No matter how much I have tripped and fallen and achieved things and been disappointed, it has been my faith that has made me whole. It keeps me on my knees and it keeps me humbled and it keeps me working. 
so that's really my mind hack is to say, well, do I believe in it enough? Do I believe in God enough to, to make this thing happen? Is this for me? Is, it, is this not for me? I can only know that by praying and being discerning and also taking leaps of faith. I mean, I moved to New York with nothing. I moved to LA with a little bit more than I had when I moved to New York, mm-hmm. but still not much. And you know, anybody who knows me personally, I've been through such a chaotic and traumatic, to be honest, couple of years uh, since 20, really the end of 20 to 20 to now. I came here to Atlanta because I needed to heal. But even in that, the one thing I can count on is my faith. And so I really, I really count that as my greatest asset is the gift of faith. And I'm only who I am because of that. All right. So we've talked about your business. We've <laughs> talked about <laughs> a little bit of the uh, consciousness side of you with, with your faith. And and I want to know, we, we want to know now a little bit more about who is Jeremiah when he's not singing, when he's not traveling, when he's not teaching. And so I like to ask if you're a reader, a watcher, or a listener, and what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens, or what else is it that you do in your times that are not dedicated to the grind? I have to say my greatest, the thing I love to do most is be a dad. Hmm, yeah. Raising my son, Amadeus. And uh, he is now two years and change. And he is the sunshine of my life. He is such a gift and a beautiful experience. So that's really what I do. You know, I have to say, since the pandemic, it's very hard to watch TV, actually. And I'm somebody who loves movies and loves TV. It's very hard to watch TV these days. I don't know why I don't have the bandwidth for it. I literally, I'm not even joking, I sit in the quiet a lot. And, uh, you know, I think that has been also super rewarding. I'm a linguist. So a lot of times when I'm sitting still, I might, you know, do trivia in other languages uh, to test my skills. Recently, I've been posting videos. So my son speaks Chi and Italian. So and now he's taught himself Russian. What? Yes, he taught himself Russian. I actually bought him a Russian a Russian oh. son, when I open this book, he's reading this book to me. It's unbelievable. Wow. This is unbelievable. Almost to keep up with him sometimes. I'm like, well, I need to be studying <laughs> more. But since I've posted videos of him speaking Italian on, online, some mothers have actually reached out to me and said, Will you teach my children Spanish or other languages? So I've actually been like teaching like Half a oh, class, like language classes to children, which has been cool. Okay, and do you do you do do you sing songs as part of your? your- yes, like this day we the alphabet, the, uh, you know, certain things. But um, yeah, so you know, I, I love doing things like that. I um, you know, I think I don't want to do anything in my life that doesn't make me happy. So I strive for that. I mean, I work really hard to make sure that everything I'm doing is bringing me some form of peace and joy. There's a, that's another mindset hack. <laughs> that's Make true. it sure. Yeah. That's true. It's so important. That's true. I mean, I've learned that lesson more than ever in the last couple of years, and I will not compromise my peace and joy ever again for anything. So I'm very, very intentional about preserving that. So my my place in Atlanta is really serene. 
And it looks like it. I can see. I'm, like, I'm looking at the high, the vaulted ceiling and the grand piano behind him. Like, oh, this is a, definitely a, a musical house. And so I, so let me ask, how does the sound vibrate in that space? Oh, it's like being in a concert hall. Yes, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. the ceilings are 30 feet high. So it yeah. really is, it's special when I decide to squawk a little bit. <laughs> well, something else that right. I'm doing actually in this moment is I've been vocal coaching a new show that's going up for a limited run on Broadway called Watch Night, which is directed by Bill T. Jones. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I've been coming to New York working on that as well. So I'm actually going to be in New York for a month starting next week as I help him put that show on its feet. So I've been coaching that show as well. So yeah, you know, it's it's cool. It's cool. I love it. Well, Jeremiah, I appreciate you taking your time out on this. Uh, for me, it's, I guess it's evening for us both. We've been trying to put this on the calendar for a bit. So I'm so appreciative that you were able to join. And before we sign off, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, Keep reaching for the stars because they are attainable with a plan. And the plan doesn't have to be more than your faith. The thing that kind of keeps Mm. you awake at night is the thing that you want to go after. And I think with a little bit of can-do-it-ness, it is all possible. And the life you want is waiting for you. So that's what I have to say. Flo, I appreciate you so much. I value you and your friendship and your support and admire your journey as well and in you becoming who you are. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. That's the beauty of, of friendships for a long time. You get to see people's journeys and you have let nothing uh, prevent you from having the life that you want to have. And that's admirable. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, kudos to us. To us. We're 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 moving into this phase of I call I call what where I am now is like my second adolescence, my adult adolescence, because it just feels like this whole new, like I was in my twenties, just experimenting with so many new things and feeling like I can take those risks because a lot of it is believing your comp- self confidence is that much higher, right? It's like you've seasoned yourself, you've been in these situations where you know and can trust your abilities, and there you go. And here we are. Here we are. Yes. All right, folks, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at glocalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon. Leave us a review. It helps others find great content online. I'm going to keep saying that, folks. We need you to say we love you so much, Glocal Citizens. (laughs) 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 And I'm going to give you a little bit. I'm going to try a little harder and, and say bye for now. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>